Jim Jordan made another ridiculous statement yesterday, so ridiculous about Nancy Pelosi, we're not going to talk about it on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Chris Ronowski, and Laura Johnston, back from a day of skiing. Yeah, happy Mardi Gras. We got and happy birthday, and no Laura Johnston. Oh, thanks, Jane. Happy Laura birthday. Laura needs to have a, a big fat punch key with a candle in it. <laughs> Okay. I, I would sing happy birthday, but I don't think we have the music rights for it. So I think I'll just say happy birthday. Happy birthday, Laura. Thank Let's you. begin. Laura will be first up. How do records we finally obtained from Cleveland State University cast doubt on claims by President Harlan Sands that a late applying candidate, the disgraced former HR director from Cuyahoga County, was the best person for a $140,000 a year? human services job. Laura Johnston, you just knew these records were going to say what they said when Harlan Sands came out and said, we don't really have any other qualified candidates in the 37 who applied. Right. And that's why it took them three weeks to get us these records. So get ready to throw your flag and you stop me when you're going to throw it. So 37 other applicants did not lack all the right skills and experience. Reporter Courtney Astolfi reviewed these applications. They showed the university ranked five other applicants as, quote, most qualified. That's the same designation they gave to Douglas Dykes, who they eventually chose for the Associate Vice President of Human Resources. There were three designations, not qualified, partially qualified, and most qualified. They got applications from HR execs at a bunch of other universities, uh, Northeast Ohio nonprofit. And four of these five most qualified candidates had experience in higher education, That was a credential that the university's job description listed as highly preferred, one that Dykes lacked at the time. Several other applicants had master's degrees and eight plus years of HR experience, five plus years of HR leadership, and they were designated only as partially qualified. So, yeah, this raises a lot of questions. Well, to quote the great and glorious Wizard of Oz. Those other applicants had something he did not have, which was higher <laughs> experience, which was one of the key factors for this job. So so this is even more suspicious, right? Because they got 37 applicants, a bunch of which they rated as most qualified, the same thing, who had something that Doug Dykes did not have yet. They let him apply months beyond the deadline, urged him to apply and then hired him and claimed to their entire staff in a late Friday missive that none of the other candidates really met what they wanted. And that's all hooey. So, yes, the flag is thrown. What what happened here? Why did they do this? That's a really good question. So, yeah, like you said, Dyke submitted a resume in February 2020 at the request of a CSU administrator. That was while he was under indictment for theft and office charges related to his tenure as human resources chief for county executive Armin Budish. Then in December, he formally applied months and months later, and then they hired him right away. They, they have a bunch of reasons, they say, like they put the search on hold during the coronavirus and they didn't really need anybody till December. But it, it's just it looks really fishy. Yeah. And, they, you know, they also tried to shame us for reporting on this by saying, you know, we believe in second chances. Right. Like, that erases the qualified people who met the actual qualifications and met the deadline that all got shoved aside so they could do the special deal with Doug Dykes. Something stinks about this deal. We still don't know what it is. We're going to keep asking questions. And you've got to wonder if all those other people are going to file a complaint. I don't I mean, I don't know if you file a lawsuit or what, but saying, look, I had qualifications over this guy. 
I, I have to say, I think we all are are pretty caring in the sense that we all believe in second chances. I know right. I do. Yeah. And what's so different about this and what, what really is is sort of outrageous about this is that the crime that he was accused of doing was related to the job that he took. There, there are tons of jobs out there that someone like Douglas Dykes could do. But maybe the doing the thing that that got him in trouble again is not the thing he should be doing right now. You know, maybe he should be paying his dues again, starting at the bottom of human resources. But going and getting a six-figure job right out the gate is really weird. And I, I just don't know, understand how the university can defend this. Well, I, I, don't. I mean, look, there's so many places where it doesn't pass the sniff test. One... They they took all these applications, did nothing with them for the better part of a year. Two, they let him apply way beyond the deadline. And three, when we caught him doing it, they gave us a line of hooey about how nobody was qualified, which we now know is not true whatsoever. So why did they do this? And, well, and they haven't explained it. There's that switch. Well, it's not a switch, right? But they hired somebody. The, the county hired somebody from CSU for a job, too, which adds another wrinkle into this. Well, remember, Douglas Dykes, when he pleaded guilty, agreed to cooperate in the investigation of Armin Budish. So you got to look at the motives of everybody involved in this and wonder what is going on here. I don't know. They have explaining to do. And I imagine that the people that donate and fund CSU will be bothered by this. I'm at the point with this this story now where I'm okay with him taking the job if they will just acknowledge the dishonesty about it. like. It's fine. Okay, so he's hired. He's doing the job. Maybe he's fantastic about it. But don't be dishonest about about what is being pointed out through the series of stories that we've done that have shown some really shady stuff going on. Right. And try and shaming us because we're chasing it, acting like we're the people that are against second chances when I don't think there's a newsroom in the country that's done more to help people have second chances or the right to be forgotten. It's a dodge to hide whatever the truth is. And They have explaining to do. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Lots of people were suspicious of the potential motive when Ohio announced last week it had neglected to count 4,100 coronavirus deaths, a quarter of the state total. So does our analysis of those deaths allay those suspicions? And how grim was December now that we know the real numbers? Jane Cahoon, we still have people that think this is a cover-up of deaths in the nursing home like it happened in New York with Governor Cuomo. I mean, people are just keep sending that saying, look, there's got to be a reason. They can't be this incompetent. What do we know so far and what do we still have to figure out? Well, we don't have any smoking gun there. We haven't really found anything yet that's really askew. And, you know, we've already had an awful lot of deaths in nursing homes that have been reported, a large percentage of them. But the the stunning thing, as you said, was December that the, this corrected data now shows that the number of deaths was nearly double than what they previously had reported. It was a really bad month. 5,597 Ohioans died, and that was up from the 2,859 that had been reported last Wednesday ahead of those corrections. And these totals could could still go up. You did ask about the nursing homes, and it's it's Wednesday when the Ohio Department of Health provides its data on nursing homes. So we won't get that until tomorrow, and and we're not exactly sure what what that might show. But Rich Exner, who who took a close look at this, did look at 
the age of of the people who were newly reported as having died. And it's pretty much in line with the percentages that we already have. Like as of last Wednesday, Ohioans age 80 and up were 52.3% of the known COVID deaths. And people in their 70s were like another 26.5. And then among the deaths that were added since then, 54.3 were people at least 80 and 25.8 were in their 70s. So that's roughly the same. Rich has a story up too that shows the breakdowns by county. Cuyahoga County still has more than any other county. But the increase in Cuyahoga County was like 32.3%, which was smaller than the statewide increase of 38.3% and much smaller than in most of the other large counties. And and then as far as race goes, that's pretty consistent as well. Among the cases where race is, is known, 83.7% of the reported deaths are to white people in comparison to 832 through last Monday. So anyway, the black-white breakdown is is about the same as well. So this kind of confirms the theory that this department is so incompetent, it couldn't pull off a grand conspiracy. It's much yeah, more believable yeah. to say, no, they're just grossly <laughs> incompetent, grossly incompetent. The miss a quarter of the state's doubts more, but at least that there, there's no reason for concern that they were covering up something to hide it. Uh, well, well, I don't know. Maybe we don't know everything yet. We'll, we'll reserve judgment, a final judgment. Okay. What I still don't think they have the confidence to be <laughs> that sinister. They couldn't pull it off. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did a recent traffic stop in Parma put a spotlight on whether relationships between Cuyahoga County jail guards and former gang member inmates are appropriate? Chris Ranowski, this is interesting in that the jail really hadn't seemed to consider some of these things before this arose. So what are the facts and what did the jail officials have to say about it? Well, what's worth noting in a kind of setup to to what happened with this story is that the the jail has a problem with drugs. And part of the reason that they have a problem with drugs is is that there are not necessarily romantic relationships, but friendships and and relationships between guards and inmates. And and largely, and, and historically, this has been driven by members of the Heartless Felons Gang, which is a pretty violent gang that we write about quite a quite a bit. They started in the jails. They're staying in the jails. And, and as part of this big investigation that we've had into the jails, drugs getting in have been a big problem. Like people have been dying of drug overdoses. And the former warden said that it's it's a problem that they can't really get their hands on. And some of the inmates they interviewed said, it's actually easier to get drugs in the jail than it is on the street. And so a couple of days ago, there was a traffic stop that took place in Parma and a Cuyahoga County jail officer was found in the car with a suspected member of the Heartless Felon Street Gang, who police say was was carrying a loaded rifle and had marijuana with him. And And the jail officer isn't accused of any wrongdoing in this case. However, jail officials have reassigned her to a different part of the jail after this happened because because they want to look into this relationship between this woman and this gang member and to see if there's any any connection to what has been going on in the jail. She said that they again they they moved her to the jail sanitation and laundry room where she'll have less contact with inmates and more supervision and a county spokeswoman said that they are quote reviewing all aspects of the situation 
but they have declined to provide any specific details about it. And again, the woman is not charged with any wrongdoing, but I think I think given the issues that they've had there over the past two or three years, especially with with all of these overdose drug deaths, it, it's it is something worthy of of examination. And but but the thing the thing in the story that threw me is she had not disclosed her relationship with this guy before this, but she did disclose it after. And what the jail administrator said in the story was they're looking to see whether she should have disclosed that relationship without having been pulled over. And it's like, wouldn't that be kind of automatic? If you have a relationship with somebody that had been in the jail, you should disclose that so everybody is on the uh, aware of it. On the well, up. That's not- let, me, let me raise this idea, though. Like, what if when you, you're hired and you fill out this paperwork, you aren't in a relationship with somebody? And then you meet somebody and you're in a relationship. What responsibility do you have to the county at that point? And, well, and- if you're working in the jail and you have a relationship with somebody that has been a ward in some previous time frame, I would think you you do owe it to them because the county needs well, to be aware. You may from a moral perspective, but you may not be required to do it. That's the that's the difference is is what does their policy say? And we don't know that because they haven't told us yet. Well, so, they don't seem to know. They said they had to check. I mean, right. that didn't seem to be something they knew front of mind, which was the surprise. They You would think they would know what the policy is about relationships between inmates, former inmates and jail staff. It'll be interesting to see what they come up with. Again, the, the officer is not accused of any wrongdoing, although they did move her, right? They took yeah. her out of her job and put her away from inmates. So they must be worried about this. Plus, well, this guy did have, you know, he's a felon with a loaded semi-automatic carbine rifle. I mean, right. so there's a danger here, too. Yeah. But again, it, it's it's a it's a thing where there's there there's some gray area in policy here that that may have not made this something that is fireable or or actionable from the perspective of the county. And we'll see what happens with this. Adam Faris has done a pretty good job of of following a lot of the the multitude of problems with the jail that seem to persist, you know, between between things like this, between drugs still getting in the jail, between guards still getting arrested, between guards letting people out of the jail, we still have a lot of serious problems after after years of writing about this stuff, investigations and and money being spent trying to address these problems, a lot of them still persist. Okay. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. What do Northeast Ohio bar and restaurant operators have to say after the first weekend in three months where they could stay open until last call? Or Johnston, we had Annie Nikoloff and Mark Bona check in with some of these folks that have been so hard hit by the coronavirus and the lack of crowds. What did they have to say? Yeah, they're all pretty optimistic about the outlook for restaurants now, and they are happy about the curfew lifted. A, a bunch of bars took advantage of the opening and stayed open until 2.30 a.m. That was the first time they've been able to do that since November January 28th, the curfew got pushed back till 11 p.m., so they had an extra hour, but this was it. It all lifted. And what's more important than just the hours, the restaurant owner said, is that it changed the mentality of people going out. The curfew was lifted. The stay-at-home advisory is gone. People feel more confident about going out for dinner or for brunch. Apparently on Valentine's Day, these places were packed. And you've got to remember, they have many fewer tables than they would have in the past. Everything is still spaced out six feet apart, although salad bars are now open. 
But these restaurateurs are saying people are coming back. They're feeling confident. We, we think we're on the upswing. And as my mom told me, she said, as older people get vaccinated, you're going to see a big crowd for some early bird specials pretty soon. <laughs> you know, I, I was reading a story, I think it was in the Washington Post, about how nobody knows why the numbers are going down across the right. world, across the, the United States and Ohio, that they're like, yeah, numbers are going down. Huh? What is that? Some people speculate it's the vaccinations. Others say there's no way because there's not enough of them. Some are saying it's the natural ebb and flow of viruses. They increase in the fall and they start to wane at the end of winter, which would mean all of these precautions we took might have been pointless. The numbers are dropping. They're still very dangerous compared to where we were last summer. But you do start to wonder, what did we need to do any of these things? Because it's just the natural world of the virus. It'll be interesting to see if those numbers start going back up as people drink till two in the morning and lose their inhibitions. It, it will be really interesting. I think it's something we need to take a look at. But you're, maybe all of those things, though, did help people take it more seriously as we all moved indoors. You know, I haven't been in other people's houses at all, and I haven't been out to dinner. And I mean, I know not everybody thinks the same way, but I think by putting those things in place, it really does cause you to think twice about your actions. Well, and the double masking really is sealing the mask on people's faces. I've noticed it before the double masking became the thing. The masks are flopping all over people's faces. <laughs> it was like not even wearing one. But when you put on that second one, as Pete Krause's story points out on our website, it seals it and it does protect people. Maybe maybe the mask mentality has finally gotten through the denseness of all the people that were rejecting it. I, I don't know. I saw I saw a woman at Kohl's the other day who had a mask that said this mask is as useless as Joe Biden. I was like, well, that is a statement. <laughs> <laughs> but at least she was wearing it. She was wearing it. <laughs> I, I think I think maybe part of the the issue is that we sort of overestimated how many people are anti-mask. I think, I think it became, I think we had a point like before Thanksgiving where things were undeniably bad. And I think, mm -hmm. I think the message got through to people. And I think the problem is that the screaming anti-mask voices, like the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world tend to get a lot of attention for that stuff, but they represent just like a sliver of minority of the country and and so I think that that we tend to think that their reach is bigger than than it actually is, and and that and that I think most people. I mean, I look. I've never in, in my in, in this entire almost year. I I've, I have never been in a situation where I've seen a confrontation between shoppers at a store and store staff. But to live online and, and to look at like Twitter, you would think that it's just happening everywhere, and it isn't. And and so I think we. I think we have have bought into the notion that there's this big anti-mask movement, and I think there is one, but I think it gets a significant amount of airtime through social media, through legitimate media, and 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 it, it makes it sort of seem like a bigger movement than it actually is. I think most people have been responsible, and and I think that's a kind of undeniable fact. That's what Mike DeWine says. I mean, his whole his whole effort, everything please, he's done please, please was to get Mike people DeWine. to wear masks. No, <laughs> he, he, Mike DeWine has worked really hard to get people to wear masks. And he's been saying lately that he believes it worked. And maybe that's why the numbers are dropping. We give him a lot of uh, criticism, well-deserved, but maybe it worked. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
Is Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose relenting on his anti-city ruling that limits each county in Ohio to a single ballot drop box, regardless of the population served? Jen Kuhn, I guess this isn't a surprise. He's still sticking it to the cities. It seems like every Republican in Columbus just wants to stick it to cities like <laughs> Right. He's basically taking the same stance that he took last year, which it's getting kind of hard to believe his past statements that that he really, you know, uh, is in favor of drop boxes or at least has no objection to them. Uh, he issued an order on Friday, once again, limiting each county to one drop box for the coming election. He's saying what he said before, that he thinks the legislature would have to authorize it through a law change. Just to remind people, this was a really heated issue during the presidential election with way more people voting absentee because of the pandemic and the Postal Service getting overwhelmed and way behind, which is still the case. Then President Trump's campaign sided with LaRose's view that the drop boxes should be limited. And the Democrats, of course, called LaRose, you know, the secretary of suppression for this. And it went through the courts, you know, with with several judges saying that Ohio law does allow for multiple drop boxes per county, but they effectively got blocked and ran out of time for the November election after federal appeals judges from the U.S. Sixth Circuit took LaRosa's side and said he was he was being reasonable. So we got to we, we got to find somebody to run against this guy, somebody who actually <laughs> wants to be a secretary of state. That makes voting easier instead of harder. I mean, I, it's bizarre to me. You you run for secretary of state to stop people from having the ease of voting. Well, maybe he'll be running for U.S. Senate instead. <laughs> <laughs> we need more people to run for Senate. Is uh, is there any legal challenge? I mean, you said they ran out of time to to challenge. Well, it when the Sixth Royal- Circuit ruled, they said, uh, you know, they granted the the preliminary. Uh, order that he asked for and said he had a high likelihood of succeeding. So I don't know if there was like an eventual ruling on it or whether it just got dropped, but that's where they The way to fix this is next year at the ballot box. Get rid of them. Let's find a Republican or Democrat, somebody who believes that we should make voting easier. This ballot drop box is as black and white an issue as there is. We have way, 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 way more people in Cuyahoga County than in many other counties in Ohio. And we make it really hard for them to drop off the ballot. It it makes no sense. Everything he says about equal voting, it, this is an attempt to stop people from having an ease of voting. And the hell with that. So, you know, find so someone get, that believes in voting. If they're going to be secretary of state, you should make it easier. So let me get this straight. The solution to limited access to ballot boxes is to go to that one ballot box is that what you're saying vote, yeah <laughs> use that one ballot box to find somebody that wants to make voting easier not harder for ohio look he was a hypocrite throughout that thing he kept saying things and then acting against them and so the facts are out he wants to limit your ability to vote in the big cities he wants to reduce democratic voting to help his party that's not the job so let's find somebody that doesn't do that. And who, th- who thinks the legislature is going to come up with a new law allowing multiple drop boxes? They won't even anybody? HB6, man. The householder <laughs> is still in their house. They're not going to do anything. That's the most lame body we've ever yeah. seen. But but there's something else that's also kind of bad here. They're cutting transit, which for communities like ours will has the likelihood of making it more difficult for people who don't have cars to go to a centralized location to vote. and 
they haven't been able to fire the terrible director of the U.S. Post Office who is going to implement more changes that make make mail d- difficult. So, you know, we, we still have all of these things that are are happening that are that are going to even make it slightly more difficult to to vote in this system that Rose is creating. OK, you're listening this week in the CLE. It's Fat Tuesday. We got to do this one. It's Fat, <laughs> it's Fat Tuesday. And we're not in our offices where people might bring us Punchki for all. So what are the best places to get it around here? And why is the Cleveland area considered such a heaven? Laura Johnston, we have a, a story up on our site to help people go and, and get this delicacy. What do we know? Yeah, there's like a dozen different places from East Lake to North Olmstead that you can go get your punchki. And that is so important to Cleveland because we have so many Eastern Europeans who live here. And this is a Polish tradition, just like parades and beads in New Orleans for for Mardi Gras. So this is a traditional pastry similar to a donut filled with jelly, custard, or cream. It's covered in powdered sugar or glaze and usually only available this time of year. So the whole idea is just you eat all your sweets today to get it out of your system before Ash Wednesday tomorrow and the fasting begins. So some bakeries have specialty flavors. Some, you know, have more powdered sugar than others. So people, I think, probably have their favorites and they go there every year. I know Rudy's Pushki started at 5 a.m. this morning with like, you know, bands and everything else. If people could get there with the snow. All right. so, uh, you know, I'm an East Coast kid. I never heard of this before I moved to Ohio 25 years ago. So I'm wondering, is this a Cleveland thing, like Sweetest Day, which nobody outside of Cleveland's ever heard of? <laughs> or, or is this a legitimate thing and it just wasn't in my South Jersey, Philadelphia area? Chris Ranowski, you you grew up in the Midwest. Did you heard of it before you moved here? I had not heard of it. I but you know I but but, but I grew up I, in Akron and I hadn't heard of it. But it's wow. weird. Oh, you guys! I mean, it's a Polish thing. I I had a a really good friend from high school whose grandma used to used to make them. I mean, well, I'm the Clevelander here. You're so. the Clevelander, right. man. You you celebrate right. Sweetest Day. Nobody else does. No, I do not. I do I, not. I, I didn't know Is what that a American Peru greetings was. that started Sweetest Day. Yeah, yeah that's no stupid. I didn't, a, a, <laughs> I didn't know what a pierogi was until I moved to the East Coast. You know, I mean, I grew up in the Mississippi, so you know, we St. Louis had a bit has a big Mardi Gras tradition because of its mm-hmm. it's it being on that shipping channel that went to New Orleans, Mobile, and all that. So, so you know, that was our our Lenten tradition was was just more of a traditional. Mardi Gras. It, it, there was no real food tied to it at all. Yeah, right. I mean, look, we heard of pierogies are a Philly thing. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that that is something we'd heard of. It's just this one, there's a bunch of stuff that's unique to Cleveland that Clevelanders think is is national in scope. And I mean, if Laura grew up in Akron and never heard of it, that answers my question. <laughs> you are Laura lived a very sheltered life. <laughs> that's true. And I'm Dutch. I'm not Polish. But I think this is should be the new tourism slogan, right? Like, come to Ohio. We have Poonchki. And sweetest Great. day. <laughs> and low corporate tax rates. <laughs> All right. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. All right. Good discussion. I'm, uh, I'm glad we didn't talk about Jim Jordan. Thank you, Jane. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. 